everyone, and welcome to our theme webinar, What Should the CEO Tell the Board No? Without further delay, I would like to introduce our presenter, Aaron Roberts. Aaron Roberts is a partner at Zine, a management consultant and expert in business process reengineering. Aaron enjoys working alongside not-for-profit executives as they lead their organizations to new levels of success. With the knack for reducing complexity and streamlining operations, Aaron's an expert in the business of not-for-profit. Prior to co-founding Zine, Aaron was a director in the securities industry, working with senior executives at large corporate and government clients. She believes that numbers tell the story. Aaron's passion is food. Eating it, cooking it, looking at it, talking about it, and like Hero, dreaming about it. Without further delay, let's begin. Aaron? Thanks very much, Anne, and welcome all of our listeners to the Zine Webinar Studio. Today, I'm going to share with you some tips for handling one of the most challenging situations an association CEO can face. What happens when your board directs you to take an action that you know is perilous. Those of you who follow our educational content, you know that Zeme hosts a workshop or a webinar every month. Zeme does consulting and association management for membership organizations of all sizes, and these webinars and workshops focus on topics of interest for leaders at membership organizations. And we host these events for two reasons. The first is to make sure that you walk away with some relevant, useful information that you can apply at your association immediately. The second reason is to introduce you to Zeme and to give us an opportunity to share some of the insights that fascinate us. When you're looking for the kind of help that we provide, you hope, we hope that you'll think of us. So this is our agenda. We're going to spend about 30 minutes on the webinar content itself. Then we're going to open it up to live Q&A. If you've got a question, you can either type it into the question box on your dashboard or make a note of it as we go along and you can ask your question live at the end or via the raise your hand feature that Anne mentioned in her introduction. The recording and the slides will be posted on our Vimeo channel after the session so you can review the material later as you wish and after the webinar you will, see, you will receive a link to the recording. In terms of what we're going to be talking about today, we're going to be talking about when you're going to be seeing a red light. When should you start to be thinking about how you're going to handle this? What are the outcomes of taking a stand against the board, against the board's directives? Let's look at some examples of when you might need to take a stand. Let's also talk about proactive management, how you can avoid this kind of thing from happening. What are you going to do if you've got to manage the worst case scenario? And then I'm going to give you seven tips for moving forward. So where does this topic fit in the high performance membership organization? And also, what is the high performance membership organization? The basis for the high performance membership organization is this sustainability model here. In the work that we've been doing with uh, membership organizations for over 15 years, We've observed that if you've got all five pillars of the sustainability model, you are almost certainly a sustainable membership organization. Now, you might not have all five pillars, and there might be a very good reason for that. doesn't mean you're not sustainable, but it does mean that you've got to focus even more vigorously on making sure that the pillars that you've got are very strong. The five pillars start with regional networks. Regional networks, an example of that is, let's say that you've got an organization that has a national component, a provincial component, and a local component. 
The advantage to the member is they've got an organization that can focus on very local regional matters, while the provincial organization focuses on bigger picture provincial matters, and the national organization focuses on even bigger picture national ma matters. The member benefits from all three of those entities working on his or her behalf. If you are a national organization and you don't have those regional entities, you have to work a lot harder in order to maintain your connectivity to those members at the grassroots level. The other four pillars are the elements of your member value proposition. These are your member services. So maybe you provide a certification or accreditation. Uh, maybe you just provide professional development for your members, different types of learning. Events, these are things like conferences, trade shows, that sort of thing, where there's inevitably uh, an element of networking as well as learning. Knowledge products, these are the meaty things that your members need to do business or to do their jobs. These could be white papers, research papers, survey results, ethics manuals, how-to manuals, that sort of thing. Stakeholder relations and issues management is managing how your organization fits into the bigger picture. That could be government relations, it could be advocacy, it could be alliances uh, with other organizations. The high performance membership organization is built on a sustainability model and there are eight elements to the HPO. There's a backstage and there's a front stage. Governance is what we're going to be talking about today and that's part of the backstage. That's the part that you don't see unless something's going wrong. The front stage is what you as a member see on a day-to-day -day basis. The backstage has five elements, HR of course, planning, Governance, you know what all of those are. Resource management is how well the organization uses the resources that it has. And revenue diversification is how reliant is the organization on a single stream of revenue. Obviously, if 100% of your revenue comes from a single source, there's a stronger element of risk there, and, and that's a potential threat to your sustainability. The front stage consists of three areas that are all highly visible. What's the work that you're doing in stakeholder relations and issues management? What is your value proposition to your members and to your sponsors? That's the front stage. So that's a very, very quick orientation to the High Performance Membership Organization. If you want to find out more, there's more information and more detail on our website at this link. So let's talk about governance. If your board is practicing good governance, it means that the actions and directions of the board are truly representing the best interests of the entire membership. And it also means that it's focusing on the sustainability of the organization. All of the actions and directives of the board should meet these criteria. So, should the CEO ever say no? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we all know that the CEO reports to the board. That's absolutely true. And therefore, if you report to the board, does that mean that you do what the board directs? Well, yes, unless these considerations have come to the fore. What if the direction of the board is going to put the CEO at risk of personal liability? What if the direction that's coming from the board is against the interests of the members or against the sustainability of the association? What do you do then? Let's not sugarcoat it here. When you take a stand, there are some things that are going on here. If you take a stand that is against the view of what the board figures the next step should be, the good news is you are going to inspire sober second thought. 
the board is definitely going to sit up and take notice if you let them know that you strongly disagree with what they're suggesting. It also means doing your job. When the board is at risk of making a, a, a bad decision, it's part of your job to actually stand up and make sure that they're very, very clear as to why it's a bad decision. Now, the downside, of course, is by standing up and saying, I think you're making a really bad decision, you might lose your job. So that's part of the risk of being a strong and a good leader. So let's talk about some examples. I'm going to give you three examples here, and they relate to the three things we talked about earlier. Where a decision affects the sustainability of the association, where the decision does not represent the interests of the members, and where the decision opens you up to liability risk. Now, I want to start off by saying, I want to be very clear here, we're not talking about situations where the CEO simply disagrees with the direction that the board is going. At any given time, that may very well be the case. The CEO feels that the board should be going or the organization should be going in a certain direction. They should be turning right. And the board feels that they should be turning left. If that's not affecting the sustainability of the organization, if it's representing the interests of the members and there's no meaningful liability risk involved, it's the CEO's job to do what they're told. But sometimes there are circumstances where you've got one of these three situations occurring. So let's talk about an example of a financial decision. Here's the scenario. We've got a situation where the board, the organization is running into a cash flow crunch. They've crunched the numbers, they've done their cash flow forecast. It is now May and they realize that they're going to be hitting the wall in October. They're going to run out of money for the year and the money's not going to start coming back in again until December when member renewals start coming in. Now, the organization does have a line of credit, which theoretically would get them through that period, but everybody knows, the board and the CEO and the CFO know that if you start drawing down your line of credit when there's no money coming in the door, it's a red flag for the bank, and the bank could very well step in and cancel your line of credit. So that's, that's a concern. So the CEO and the CFO put together a plan that they're going to use a three-pronged approach. Their recommendation is, Number one, to contact some of the large suppliers and let them know that they're going to be paid in part, um, but the other part of their payment is going to be delayed for a month or two. To contact some of their large members and ask them if they would be willing to pay, let's say, a month or two early. So you've got a combination of not so much money going out, more money coming in, and then the third prong of it is to draw down somewhat on the line of credit. The CEO presents this to the board. Now the board can make a decision about what they want to do next. But let's say the board says, as, as is, this is a real-life example, by the way, the board says, well, why do we need to make it that complicated? Why don't we just draw down the entire line of credit, put it in another bank account, and we're good to go. We've got the money sitting there. Now, of course, the CEO knows that as soon as you do that, the bank is going to smell a rat. They're going to step right in, and they're going to cancel your, your line of credit, which is going to put you right up against it. Really bad idea. Let's talk about the impact of that in a few minutes. If that happens, the association's sustainability is going to be threatened. Another example is a regional decision which has an impact on the interests of the members. Here's a scenario. You've got a national organization that has provincial affiliates. Provincial affiliates all have a seat on the board. They are all independent organizations. They can choose to be part of the national organization or they can opt out. One of the provinces is unhappy. They feel they're not really getting a lot of value out of being part of the affiliation, and they're threatening to pull out. 
And what they do is they essentially hold the board's feet to the fire. They say, okay, listen, either you're going to give us these privileges, and if you don't give us these privileges, we're going to pull out of the affiliation. Now, the privileges that they want are exclusively for that province and are quite expensive. In other words, it's not possible to give them to that province and to every other province as well, too. So if the board agrees to that, you're going to end up in a situation where the board is benefiting, in this case, about 8% of the members and not benefiting, benefiting at all 92% of the members. So we've got a scenario where the interests of the members are at risk. Now, we've got a scenario where the board is sufficiently concerned about losing this province that they're willing to make that kind of um, devil's agreement. Then we've got a situation where the interests of the majority of the members are jeopardized. Here's the third scenario, HR risk. We've got an employee, and that employee's name is Joe. Joe is doing a good job of his job, but for whatever reason, there's a number of the board members that are just not crazy about Joe. For whatever reason, they just don't like Joe. Not only that, but going on behind the scenes, one of the directors on the board is making a play for Joe's job. He's telling the rest of the directors that he would do a much better job than Joe, and what should happen is Joe should get fired and that director should take his place. The CEO is aware of this. There's some discussion about that, and the CEO points out, well, first of all, I am responsible for operations. I need to make the decision about who's part of the organization as an employee and who isn't. Secondly, Joe's doing a really good job. I'm very happy with Joe's performance. And finally, I'm concerned about the appearance of a conflict of interest where we would, we would fire Joe and put in a member of the board of directors. Also, finally, there are financial implications to this. If, if Joe gets let go, there's going to be substantial severance, and it's going to cost us quite a lot of money. So some of the board of, of directors say, well, we don't need to pay Joe Severand. I, I don't think that's going to be necessary. We can just let him go, and, uh, and that's it. We won't pay him anything. So where's the risk here? There's significant liability risk. There's employment standards. There might even be uh, human rights possibilities. You know, if Joe is ill, if Joe is a member of a minority, you have, you have the possibility that you could be sued on many different fronts. And it's not just the organization that could be sued. It's actually the, the executive director or the CEO could be personally sued as well for being party to something like that. So where do we go here? The worst case scenario in all of these situations is that the board completely goes against what the CEO is recommending. In the case of the financial decision, your worst case scenario is the board says, listen, you know, we've heard what you have to say but we totally disagree, go back, draw down that entire line of credit and put it in another bank account. That's what we're directing you to do. Now, I do know of a situation where that happened, and in fact, what the CEO and CFO did is they went right back and did exactly that. As it turned out, um, the organization ended up going under and the CFO and the CEO lost their jobs. Obviously, that's a bad situation, but if you've been directed to do it, you've got to figure out how you're going to handle that. Executing a bad decision without any other action is definitely not the right thing for the CEO to do. Really what the CEO should be doing here is one of two things. Either make the request in writing, ask, them, or rather ask the board to make the request in writing, put in, that, um, put in that document, whether it's email or whether it's a letter, here's what I think you're asking me to do, um, here are my reasons why I don't think that's a good thing to do, here is what I see as being the outcome, if you want me to do this, please direct me to do this in writing. And have somebody sign something or somebody send an email back to you, the president, on behalf of the board. 
so that you do have a paper trail that you were directed to do this and that you did point out the potential consequences. The other option is to, in writing, refuse to do it and explain why you've refused to do it, whether it's association liability or personal liability or, or a combination of the two. Now, with these two options and the examples that were given earlier, when should you use which option? In the case of the financial decision, the request in writing and then the execution would probably be the most appropriate thing to do here. The, the, the CEO here is not opened up to personal liability. The CEO would be making probably a bad financial decision, but the CEO isn't breaking the law by doing it. They're just participating in the execution of something that's threatening the association's sustainability. So getting it in writing and having a paper trail will go some way toward protecting the CEO's reputation and also inspiring that sober second thought on the part of the board of directors. If it is requested in writing, you're certainly not going to endear yourself to the board, um, but it might make the board realize that you take it sufficiently seriously, that they, in taking it sufficiently seriously, might decide to, to listen to what the CEO has to say. In the case of the regional decision, same thing. A request in writing is appropriate. If and when you get questions from the other provinces as to why this decision was made, you do have that paper trail and it's very clearly the board's decision and it's very clear that the CEO did warn the board. Again, you're not doing anything illegal here. You're not opening up the board to uh, legal liability or yourself to legal liability. You're, you're just participating in making a bad governance decision. Therefore, the request in writing is appropriate. Now, the HR decision, this is a whole different ball of wax. You could be opening yourself up as a CEO to personal liability, the association to liability, not to mention the, the arguably unfair and even perhaps immoral action that you're taking with respect to Joe. So there's a real liability risk here, and it's not worth anybody's job to take that on just because you know, you're being told to by the board. So in that case, refusing and writing would probably be the appropriate way to go. But we don't want to get there. We don't want to get to the worst case. Remember, we want to have a good relationship with the board. We want to help the board to make good decisions and help the board not get into a situation where their back is up against the wall and they are feeling that they are in a situation where the bad decision is the right way to go. So first of all, anticipate these things. When you hear the board getting concerned about finances and starting to get maybe even a little bit hysterical, it often happens when a financial situation is going south that board members who have never experienced anything like this before start getting, well, they start getting very fearful. And sometimes when people are fearful, they don't make the right decisions. So anticipate that. Don't go into a board meeting and just put this in front of them and wait for the reaction to happen. Make sure that you're managing the situation. Anticipate that there's going to be concern about it. Make sure that they've got lots of warning. Don't go to them and say, okay, we're hitting a wall next month. Make sure that when you see even any sign of this happening, you're giving them ample warning. It may not happen, but at least they've had plenty of warning and lots of time to make a good decision. Plan for the potential of that board reaction. Make sure that when you give a recommendation, you've got reasoning um, that is meaningful to the people that you're dealing with. Put it into a narrative that they can understand. If you're dealing with a board full of lawyers, your narrative and your example is going to be different than if you're dealing with a board full of um, construction business owners. You've got to make it relate to real life, something that they can, they can see in the way that they do their job or their business. It's going to help them to connect much better with the recommendation that you're make, making. Also make sure that you go into any 
any board meeting where a decision is going to be made with some draft motions. Uh, have a draft motion that is going to have the board vote in favor of what you're recommending and make sure you've got a sufficient level of detail in there. Also be prepared if they're going to vote against your recommendation, make sure there's a sufficient level of detail in that as well too. Just go in armed with the motions so that whatever happens, whatever decision the board makes, the board is making it in, in very clear and concise terms that can be referred to later. Here are seven tips for success. Going forward, keep in mind that your board is made up of human beings. Human beings are all open and susceptible to groupthink. Human beings are all open to making bad decisions when they're fearful, when they're uncertain, or when they just don't have the experience in order to make the right decision. Often you've got a situation where the CEO is the only one who really has association experience. The CEO is the only one who's been through this before. This is particularly true when you've got a professional organization where everyone on the board is a member of a particular profession that may have no experience whatsoever with running an association. So keep in mind that the background of the people that you're dealing with is, is probably very, very different than, than it is for you as a CEO. So remember and plan for the fact that they don't have your experience. Start off with making sure that somewhere in your policies there is explicit delegation for operational functions to the CEO. If you can point back to a policy and say, well, hey, wait a minute, we've got a policy here that says hiring and firing decisions are the purview of the CEO. Often when you can point back to a policy, it really diffuses the situation. The board can say, oh, okay, right, there's the policy, it's in black and white, the, the, the decision is obvious. Same thing with an executive limitations policy. An executive limitations policy basically puts a corral around the CEO and says these are the lines that the CEO can't cross. But within these lines, the CEO is delegated to make the, any appropriate decision that they wish. They just can't cross the lines. If you got that explicit delegation and an executive limitations policy, when it comes time to make a decision, the CEO can at least point to the fact as to whether or not this is a CEO decision or it's a board decision. If it's clearly a CEO decision, then you've dodged that bullet. If it's clearly a board decision, then you've still got the problem that you need to manage. Number three, communication, communication. Remember, when people leave the boardroom, they go back to their day-to-day -day lives. They don't necessarily remember all of that discussion. And when the next board meeting happens, maybe they haven't thoroughly read the minutes. Maybe they remember it differently than they thought. Maybe they were daydreaming or not paying attention at that time. Remember, you're living it every day. They're not. They're volunteers, and they've got lots of other stuff on their plate. So Telling them once isn't going to be enough. You've got to tell them more than once, many times, and in a variety of ways. With narratives, remember, that they're going to be able to connect with. Also, explain why they should make the decision that's the right decision. What's in it for them? What's the downside for them if they make a bad decision? Again, put it in terms that are specifically about them. Also, as a CEO, it's your job to build trust and to build credibility. Obviously, explaining things, making the right decision, demonstrating why it was the right decision, demonstrating the success of the organization because decisions have been made that were right, and making sure that the board is, has got a vested interest and has skin in the game with the big decisions that, that were made. Building trust, obviously that's important as well. How do you build trust? Well, obviously by being credible and doing things right, but also remember when you screw up, building trust is not making up excuses or pretending it didn't happen, 
or trying to gloss over it. It's taking responsibility as a leader. Maybe it was your decision. Maybe it was one of your employees' decisions. But taking responsibility for, for it right away and saying you understand that it was a mistake. Here's why it won't happen again. And here's what we're going to do about it. Also, let's talk about fear. Managing fear is important. Don't wait until board members are in full-fledged um, fight or flight um, uh, response. Make sure that you manage the fear before it actually happens. Make sure that everybody feels calm. They feel like they've got a plan. They've got a scenario to manage all the possible outcomes. Inspire calm before fear has an opportunity to, to, to get its hooks on you. Also keep in mind that sometimes you need to inspire fear. Sometimes you have a situation where your board of directors is, is inclined to put their head in the sand and, and kind of hope that their, their term is going to expire before, <laughs> before you actually hit the wall. So sometimes it's appropriate to light a fire under the board so that they start feeling those flames and a little bit of fear makes them inclined to actually take the action that they need to take. Also keep in mind, people on your boards of directors are going to have varying levels of experience and, and knowledge that will help them to make the right decision. Make sure that you're working well with the board of directors people who have experience, who are able to make the right decision, who have maybe been through this before, so that they can help the, the other directors on the board to understand the decision that they need to make and to help them make, make the right decision. Use those people effectively and make sure that you're doing board training on a regular basis. Throw these examples into your board training so if something like this happens, your board is already experienced with what the right decision is. Oh, that, that's a very good way of being preemptive about the possibility of, of certain things that might come down the pipe later on. So are you a high-performance membership organization? Why don't you find out? Do your own two-minute self-assessment at this URL. You can go straight to our homepage and click on HPO survey, and you'll get an immediate response that tells you whether you are or not in eight different categories. We're now going to open it up to Q&A. Anne, do we have any questions? Thanks, Erin. Um, as Erin mentioned, we are now open for Q&A. If you have a question for Erin, you can use the question section on your GoToWebinar dashboard. Or if you'd like to ask your question verbally, you can use the Raise Your Hand feature. And that feature is also found on the dashboard as well. Karen, our first question is, what recourse does the CEO have if she or he gets fired for doing the right thing? Excellent question. When or if you end up in this situation, it's important as a CEO to understand what the possible outcomes are and to make sure that you are well set up for what those possible outcomes are. First of all, the paper trail is important because after the fact, people remember things differently. Remember, we're all human beings. You might remember it differently than, than one or more of the board of directors. So you want to make sure that it's all clearly spelled out in black and white. Hence, um, what I was saying earlier in my remarks, making sure that whatever it is that you're going to do, whether you're going to execute it or whether you're going to refuse to execute it, that it's all in writing so that after the fact, there is no, no question about it. Keep in mind, if you get fired, you're not going to have any access to your office email. So make sure that you've got a paper file for this so that if you ever had to bring it up again, you would be able to, to demonstrate what, what actually went down. 
keep track of the, um, the minutes of the board uh, meetings, what decisions were made, make sure that you've got copies of those as well, so that there's, later, if you have run into a problem, there's no question about what really happened. Now, in terms of recourse, if the board lets you go because they're just not happy with you anymore, well, it is what it is. Um, presumably, you've got a contract, and that contract says what happens in the event that you were let go. And as long as the board has followed the terms of the contract, then you know you've, they've, they've fulfilled their obligations to you, and your, your recourse is to go and, and get another job. Now, in the event that the contract terms are not followed, or in the event that, um, that there has been a violation of employment standards or human rights or something along those lines, then your recourse could be employment standards, it could be small claims court, it could be human rights. Hopefully, it will never come to that situation. Obviously, make sure that you've got a paper trail and make sure that you've got an employment contract that makes it very clear what you're supposed to be doing and what happens if you decide to, you or your board decide to part company. And do we have any other questions? We do. Don, I noticed that you used the raise your hand feature. Um, I'm going to unmute your line now, and you can ask your question verbally to Aaron. Don, can you hear us? Yes, I can. And, Go ahead, uh, Don. Thank you. Uh, Aaron, thank you very much. Um, it's almost to uh, feel like you're talking directly to me. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and we have spoken before on some of the issues that, uh, that you've raised. And, uh, yeah, it can get kind of messy sometimes, uh, especially when you're not expecting it after 10 years of smooth sailing. Um, but uh, one question I've got is, and this relates to something that actually happened to me, it, you're, you go into a, a board meeting, uh, you're prepared to deal with specific issues uh, that you normally do at that particular meeting, and then because of uh, new kind of executive that you're dealing with, um, they somehow spot some red herrings. And all of a sudden, there is a sense of panic. And they met prior, maybe had dinner the night before that I wasn't part of. And uh, all of a sudden, all, pardon me, but all hell breaks loose. And you're all of a sudden caught flat-footed because, well, to be honest, you don't have everything from those particular issues. And they are, you know, in this case, financial, but uh, not particularly uh, significant. And as it turns out, over a course of months, it clears up the fact that, yeah, there's really no real problem there. Uh, but it, but unfortunately, because of that whole situation, it ends up your 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 the, the trust between the board and the CEO, uh, executive director, has uh, been damaged, uh, and um, you know, it, it's something that is, as I say, you're caught flat-footed. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on that? How, how do you try to prepare for something that you really don't expect? I mean, it's one thing when you know what the agenda is fully implied, you know, is, is, you know, exists in the agenda, but this is something that comes up from, um, as I say, the executive on the board to that is not to do with the uh, what was set in the agenda as much as just something that um, was spotted and uh, actually turns out to be what I would call a red herring. Well, you've got a few options, Don. Um, one thing for sure, if you are ever um, asked a question or asked to provide information in a board meeting that is 
off topic and isn't something that you might reasonably have come to the board meeting prepared to answer, it is completely acceptable and in fact is, is the right thing to do for you to say really one of two things. If you know that this is something that you can call back to the office and get an answer on fairly quickly, you can say, listen, can we defer this until after lunch and I will contact the office and I'll have an answer for you after lunch. That's totally acceptable. Uh, furthermore, if it's something that's a lot more detailed, it's also acceptable to say, you know what, it's going to take me you know, a few hours or a couple of days to, um, to prepare an answer for that. So I'm, I assure you I will. So if you can leave it in my court, I will make sure that I've got an answer back to the board by tomorrow or a week from now or whatever the case may be. So just be confident about the answer. Make sure that you're being transparent and saying, you know, I, I certainly didn't come prepared for that and here's how I'm going to make sure that you get your answer. Now, the other thing that's going on here is if you've got a situation where, you know, the, the trust has been eroded already and we've got a situation where you've got some people on the board that are kind of gunning for the CEO, it is absolutely appropriate to have a frank conversation at that point. You know, if it seems like the, the question is a question of deliberately and, and quite vocally questioning your capability or your management or something along those lines, it's appropriate to say, you know, what I think I, what I'm concerned about here is it sounds like there's a lack of trust. Are you concerned that I'm not doing my job? Are you concerned that you know I've you know I've been I've been neglecting my responsibilities? If that's what you're concerned about, let's talk about that and let's arrange uh, a meeting to specifically address your concerns on that front because I I think that might be really what's going on here. So tackle it head on. Um, that way, if that really is the concern, it's going to give them an opportunity to to answer truthfully and not deal with the red herring, but deal with the elephant in the room. So I would say those those are your options. Okay, well, thank you. Most welcome, Don. And do we have any other questions? We do. Next question is: I thought executive limitations policies were used in a policy governance organization. I would love to have one. Excellent question. Executive limitations is a is a phrase used by John Carver. Um, and you're quite right. This is this this executive. The concept of an executive limitations policy is right out of the policy governance model. Now, I will make sure that in in to put all things on the table here. Anybody who follows the policy governance model and is an expert in it will tell you that you can't take bits and pieces out of the policy governance model and say that you're following the policy governance model. So. I just want to say up front that the policy governance model consists of way more pieces than just the executive limitations policy. However, if you are not prepared for one reason or the other to take on the whole model, the executive limitations policy can absolutely help. So I would encourage you to, um, to uh, look up the Carver model and find out what the executive limitations policy looks like. And yes, you can definitely put that in place internally and I would recommend, you know, it, even if you can't do anything else about policy governance, um, make sure you do this. If you want um, me to send you a link about that, um, please just uh, send us send me an email, and I will I'll send you a link that will will take you to either a book that you can read or a link that you can find online about this. And do we have any other questions? We do, and I think this is a follow up to the previous question. Uh, the person says, "I am hired as staff. I don't have an employment contract. Should I get one?" How now, after seven years in the role and 13 years in the association? You know, it's never too late <laughs> to have a 
of an employment contract. Um, and in fact, um, the right thing to do is to what should have happened if you know if if both you and the organization were following best practices is before you even started the job, um, you should have been given an employment contract which you would have signed before your first day on the job. Also, whenever your job or your compensation changes, your employment contract should be updated. So an employment contract is something that should be living and breathing on an ongoing basis. Um, now, after a long time at the organization, it is perfectly reasonable to ask for an employment contract. Um, just keep in mind, and I'm not a lawyer here, but uh, my understanding is that in order for a contract to take place, there must be some exchange of something. And I don't know whether you can um, just put an employment contract to, um, to, to, to bed and have it relevant on the basis of receiving your regular salary or whether it would have to be um, associated with some kind of an increase. If you get an annual increase as, as a matter of course or as part of a bonus, then what I would suggest is time it with that so that um, you know, your, your new salary is going to be in the employment contract. But yes, absolutely. Um, make sure that you do get it. And really, the organization should be doing it for everybody. So keep in mind that there might be a bit of a delay in doing it because the organization has to think about the whole organization, not just you. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, last question um, for today. What if you have a bully on the board who dominates the decision making? Yeah, that's a tough one. I, when you've got a bully on the board, often you'll find that people will just shut up. You know, the, and the bully will, people will vote with the bully because they don't want the bully to take their head off, you know, in the room or out of the room. So people get intimidated into into making a bad decision and maybe even believing that that what the bully is saying is is actually true. One very important part of this is this brings up the role of the chair, the chair or the president. In other words, the um, the the chief officer of the board. It is a fundamental responsibility of the chair, the person that's chairing the board meetings, that they need to get bullies to pipe down and get other people to pipe up. So if you've got a situation where one person, bully or not, is dominating the conversation, the chair needs to make sure that that person is, is asked to give other people the floor. And not only that, but the chair is specifically going to other people and saying, Bob, what do you think about this? You know, what's, your, what's your view about it? If everybody's silent, uh, one, one option that the chair can have is say, okay, well, I'm not hearing anyone, um, anyone disagreeing with this. but in order for us to have an appropriate debate on the subject, we really need to, to hear both sides of it. So could I have someone who, who maybe agrees with this actually deliberately take the other side of the equation so we can have a more robust debate around it? Uh, going forward in the long run, anybody who's being a bully at a board meeting, you need to have a conversation with them, and that's the chair's job. The chair needs to sit down with them one-on-one, -on -one, explain why their behavior is inappropriate, and how in order to be a good director it needs to change. Sometimes bullies know they're being bullied, bu being bullying, but they just think that's, that's okay, that's the way that you get things done. Sometimes bullies don't even realize how they're coming across. Um, so you really have to figure out, is it just that this person doesn't realize it? And by telling them or pointing it out to them on a regular basis, they'll stop. You also need to keep in mind, is what they're doing, is what they're doing a potential legal liability? It, are they treating other board members in a way that that might open up the organization to liability. If it's dominating the conversation, that's one thing. If it's being outright offensive, 
and it's, it's violating uh, potentially legislation or appropriate business behavior, then there's, there, there's other things that you're going to have to do as a chair and as a board to deal with that. Erin, just as a yeah. quick thing, um, a lot of people are actually asking this question, what if the chair is the bully? <laughs> yes, that's a very good point, yes. If the chair is the bully, then clearly somebody else has got to talk to the chair. And in that case, what I would suggest is that the rest of the officers get together and have that conversation with the chair. Usually, the rest of the officers as a group, it'll be very clear to the chair, this isn't just one person's opinion. It's the rest of the officers. These are people that I'm working with, and they're pointing this out to me. That's, that's one way of dealing with it. You might also um, consider another possibility is having the officers joined by perhaps somebody else on the board uh, who has a lot of credibility, somebody who the chair slash bully looks up to, um, somebody who the chair feels uh, a moral responsibility to. Make sure that whoever you're using to have that conversation with the chair is someone who has credibility with the chair and who the chair is going to listen to. And by the way, for those of you who have a bully for a chair, I, I, I feel your pain. Any other questions, Anne? No other questions for today. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you to all of you, our listeners. Thank you so much for some great questions. And later in March, I do hope that you're going to join me for our webinar on what you don't know can hurt you. What's the risk of not following your bylaws? This is a significant area of risk. And interestingly enough, we found this is a common danger for associations of all sizes. And in April, Gerald Bram and I are going to be sharing with you the highlights of the 2016 Benchmark Survey for Membership Organizations. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you in March.